You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, February 4th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everybody. So. Hello. Hello. What's up? I don't have a this day. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> we don't happened. have anything. Nothing no science fiction. No day. who's that noisy. No this day. <laughs> this is a special extra episode of the SGU. We have 15 listeners on a, a go-to meeting with us. And uh, what we are going to do is take live questions. And that's going to be the whole show. Uh, so Yay. we will take questions one at a time. And we'll, we'll let the listener uh, ask their question, and then we'll, we'll chat about it. How's that sound? Sounds sound? good. I'm at the tail end of a, of a really bad cold, so that's why my voice sounds like crap. I can tell. Yeah. You sound like crap. When I woke up, I had almost complete laryngitis. This morning, you mean. <laughs> Is that a technical Ooh, term? Yeah. Almost complete laryngitis? Yeah, I mean, I basically was Partial making laryngitis. squeaky noises. <laughs> All right, so who wants to ask the first question? Okay, so Mike Hampton is the first one. Hi, guys. Hey, excited to be here. Hey, hey. I want to quick you with Bob. <laughs> oh. All right. Uh, I wanted to go first because the question I wanted to ask, you guys actually covered on your Friday show, so I was a little bummed about that. But So I'll, I'll kind of lob a, uh, a just a speculative one I think is for fun. Is um, What would you guys like, what discovery do you guys would just love tomorrow to wake up and see in the media and not a you know not the media reporting some sensationalist uh, headline, but actual for real scientists have discovered blank, and it it be for real. For me, that's easy. I, I want SETI to have the Encyclopedia Galactica being picked up by one of our radio telescopes. <laughs> I want an unequivocal intelligent signal from an alien civilization. I'll settle for the primes. You don't have to be the whole encyclopedia. You know, I'll settle for just that. I would go with a cure for cancer, even though, like, that's so ridiculous because there are a billion cancers and each one is a different cure. But, uh, I, I would, I would think some huge medical breakthrough would be the ideal one for me. Cause I think we should have that stuff sorted out before we get to seeing the aliens. Spicy, we're never going to have that sorted out. Because it's just, some it's of it just going to make us live longer and then we'll die of other stuff. And then people in, will be saying, well, we have to cure that thing that we're now dying from before we'll we contact cancer. aliens. All right. Bob. Well, then I'll say a cure for death. Bob, what's That's- my answer? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't do anything else until we cure death. <laughs> yeah. um, a cure for Peronis? I don't, I don't know, Jay. Oh, oh, God. Yeah, uh, no, that's not it. Is that a beer? I've, I've a be- food? <laughs> a cure for Sharknados. Zombies are real. <laughs> artificial intelligence? Nanotechnology? Yeah, it was artificial intelligence was the first one. And the second one I thought of was definitely the, you know, unraveling the, the idea of aging, like what makes us age. Cause that really does solve most, if not all, medical problems. Well, I'll just comment that a good, fusion between Rebecca and Steve is in fact the Encyclopedia Galactica because that would be information that we could use to then develop cures for cancers and, and lots of other diseases so I could th- so that would those two would work together very nicely I feel like nicely. that's cheating though that's well 
fine, but it's true. If it's a true Encyclopedia Galactica as Sagan envisioned it, then yes, it's not cheating. That's just the way it is. All right. Well, then I hope um, scientists discover Sonic the Hedgehog. Okay. <laughs> um, I would have to. Uh, my sense. first thought actually was fusion, which would be epic. Mm. But I could do be- I could do a lot better than that. I think an art- artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's the one I'd go a with. True artificial intelligence. That would, yeah, sure, we got, it could cause a singularity and they could exterminate us as vermin, but that's just a risk I'm willing to take. It would be, um, <laughs> that could, it would just be a, Glad such to a hear deal. That you're willing to take that risk. <laughs> yes. Um, such a civilization changer right there. All bets are off and it could, and See, it, that's it why could I self- didn't say aliens landing on Earth because they, yes. they could exterminate us as vermin. <laughs> yes. But, you know, a signal from, from light years away is pretty safe. Yeah, but imagine the virus that they can have encoded in that message and bring our civilization to its oh, knees. Great. That's all right. We already cured a death. mega virus. Yeah, I don't fear the singularity. I would definitely go with that because bring the singularity it. would bring, bring so much with it. I mean, it's going to happen eventually anyway, so why not when we're alive? Don't fear the singularity is my Blue Oyster cult cover band. How about uh, faster than light travel? We have to- Never going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then how about this? Then how about this? How about wormhole? Wormhole. Yeah. Harness. Yeah, that's okay. All right. No, I, I love that, Ev. Wor- yeah, you'll just, you'll just have to travel 25,000 light years to get to a black hole to use that wormhole. <laughs> I, love, I love how everybody's cool. picking apart Evans. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Bro, I'll pick apart any Galactica, of them. why not? <laughs> that could be bathing the Earth right now. You don't know. True. Mike, do, do you have an answer? Yeah, actually, mine wasn't too different from yours, Steve, but yours just was bigger. Um, mm-hmm. I would accept, uh, I think, uh, discovering life elsewhere in our own solar system would be cool, even if it was just single-cell, like, bacteria that went extinct three million years ago. Even that would be, like, <coughs> really, really cool. That would like, be cool. Not as cool as intelligent life, but I would accept that, you know, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, Mike. That was a great question. Tor, what's up, man? Oh, very little. It's in the middle of the night. Uh, Where are you? Wow. Two. Must be Norway. Norway, yes. No way. <laughs> My question is kind of hard. It, it sort of, it made a lot, a lot of noise uh, among, amongst my friends. It's about uh, teleportation, I guess you know. You know what uh, that here, is, we right? here we go. Here we go. I'm sorry. Yes, um, you die. Get over it. <laughs> Yes, that's that's what I, that's my point too. It, 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 <laughs> He's agreeing with you, Rebecca. Would you use this machine to get from A to B? The the question is about the fact that you die and then get uh, reproduced at another place with new atoms, right? Would you have used that machine? Would we use it? I'm going to okay. say that so question all of them are a no. None of these guys would. So Tor's question is: Would we use a teleporter that? Involved the process involves destroying you at one location and recreating you in another location. No f- way, no way. Yeah, no way. Absolutely yes. Because yes, I would. Yes, because you're gonna die anyway. I I, I know that this is difficult for you, Jay. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Yeah, but not yeah, but, today. Yeah, but I, uh, you're gonna die anyway. Yeah, right. What? I'm just gonna shit away my my there forty no, years I have left and, and yeah. no. Because there's no difference between you as you are right now and an identical copy of you 20 feet 
that way. There's sure absolutely that? no difference. Yeah, but the only no difference. difference that is perceivable is me. It's a different set of atoms. But it's it? not perceivable to you. It would absolutely not be perceivable to you. You would reappear as though you were over there and now you're over here. Yeah, to everybody else, but I... The me who no, I am to you. To right now would actually be dead. So what? What is you? It it you know it, I've I've talked about argued and damn near came to fistfights over this topic many times. So I I think I have my final word on it. It's okay for you. It's not okay for me. I'm not doing that. You, okay. You want to? I'm, I'm just saying that there's be rebuilt with different atoms. Really like, like go right ahead. But you uh, formally die. And I don't because I choose not to go into Tor's teleporter. I will go into Evan's wormhole, and, and, though. And both of us end up exactly the same. No, like, I will I, I will enjoy I get, the rest I get of my life while of people... you are a pile of atoms blowing in the wind. I mean, it's a profound difference. No, I would be standing over there because there's zero difference between the me that is here and the me that has teleported over But your zero consciousness, difference. the consciousness that was R1 is gone. No, it continues over there. It matters because your cons- only matters to the. But Jay, what you're saying, yeah, but what, Rebecca, what you're it's arguing right here is that there is something unique and special. There is a ghost in your machine, and I don't believe that. I believe that. No, I, I, I disagree. I think that's a false premise. Yeah. Atoms in our brain, and when it if if all of the atoms in me are recreated right over here, then that consciousness is Well, what about the idea, let's say that to dip into, you know, a hundred sci-fi stories, let's say that the machine breaks during the process and forgets to destroy you, and now there's two of you, right? Just follow my logic. So now there is... Things are about to get sexy. Original Rebecca. (laughs) Yeah, they look at each other and run into the next room. No, there's original... Is it incest or lesbianism? There's original Rebecca, and then there's the copy of Rebecca, which is clearly not Rebecca because it's just a copy of Rebecca, right? You know, just as human and all that. But then the machine or the people operating the machine go, oh, shit. We uh, this thing didn't work, and we now got to kill the original Rebecca because what? No, what kind of horrible people are these that would just kill a sentient life? Well, what's form? the difference? They're killing you when they when they dematerialize you, aren't they? Wait, what? Oh my no, god, like, I, they, Rebecca, this is easy. No, be- we haven't even gotten into the weeds yet, and I already stumped you. Yeah, so you haven't stumped me. No, not wanting to be murdered does not equal being okay with dematerializing here and rematerializing there. But it's not murder, Rebecca. You have a, you have your duplicate. It's not murder. Because, no, because now I don't have a duplicate that will be continuing on. Because if you were to murder me, there's like that other being is already in existence. So now I have gone on living for a period of time that is not going well, to be a part of this. So what's your that, limit then? Uh, a pe- yeah, five a seconds, second, ten seconds? Like, you know, how lo- I want it your, to be immediate. All right, but you're saying though that it's not – you're not dying as long as there isn't an overlap between the two Rebecca's living. And what I'm saying is is that if you just remove the idea of another one being brought into existence – you are being expunged from existence. Yeah, and and that's what I was about to say is that I get that for a lot of people the teleportation problem really freaks them out, but for me the first time this occurred to me uh years and years years ago, for me it was like, oh, I'm actually that is actually it makes me okay with death because who cares? <laughs> Like, because if there were another me materializing somewhere, I would be absolutely okay with it. So it's actually d- gone a long way towards helping me come to terms with death. Nice. Well, I, 
And and you know I'm I'm fine if it's fine with you I'm fine with that for you it's just not fine for me and that's like my new modified answer that's, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna push you into the teleporter I, so Rebecca you're saying you're fine with it but you're not discounting the notion that your continuity of consciousness will have been broken that you what you are experiencing now as yourself would no longer exist that the fact that a copy of you exists. While to the outside world it may be identical, it's still not you, and you would have no awareness of that copy's existence. But it is, and you're okay, you're just okay with. I would that. have no awareness of anything. <laughs> right, right. You'd be in oblivion. That's what we yeah. try. We're trying to avoid yeah. that. I mean, there are. Pe- yeah. I've argued. But you can't avoid. I've it. argued with people that actually, I, I could delay it. Actually, don't think that there's a breach in continuity. I mean, I and I don't even know how to respond to that. Is it? it I don't think that there's a breach in continuity. Like I sure there is. I I in 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 I I see what you're arguing as a breach in continuity, but to everyone involved from everyone's standpoint there is no breach in con- continuity because I am dead and can't imagine anything. So there's there's nothing there for me to for continuity to break. I'm just I cease to exist. But the see, copy that's of the me problem. has perfect continuity. Everyone who's watching is perfect continuity. So what's the point? Who cares? I just have a problem with you being fine saying, I am dead. See, those words, I just can't get past those words, I am dead. I got a problem with that. But it's going to happen. Most most people do. Of course it's going to happen. Then I'll just kill myself right now. It's going to happen. Okay. The thing is, you aren't dead. Well, you will be dead uh, uh, in the process between uh, when you are transferred, but you won't be dead because I, I view it like... Uh, I'm just reduced to information, and if that information is lost, then I am lost. But uh, if you can then use the information to put me back together again, again then I will be the same person. Yeah, I agree I? with Tor. You're not dead in any meaningful sense of the word dead. But like, but the but the idea that you know, first of all, there's there is something kind of metaphysical about what you guys are are backing or describing because there is nothing inherently special when you get down to the atomic level. They're identical, right? So an a-, a hydrogen atom is a hydrogen atom, whatever. So there could be a million exact copies of you at that instant, or one, or none, right? It's you know we're we're looking at is that the idea that inside of your mind, you know, the creation of your consciousness in the configuration of cells and atoms and molecules and everything that makes up you. There's nothing inherently special about that meat. There's nothing inherently special about anything other than the particular configuration at that moment as your consciousness exists, right? So if we made a copy of you, the other the other human would be just as relevant, just as, you know, with all the rights of, of a human being and everything. But the fact is that those other atoms and that other configuration are not you. They are somebody else that is identical to you. There is an absolute so? difference between so, those two beings. Tor, I think, hit the nail on the head when he said that as long as the information is there, the information is him. But that is the question. Are you just the information or are you the substrate that holds the information? That is also relevant to the notion of whether or not you upload a virtual representation of the information you're into your brain into a computer. Is that then you? Or does it have to be the information and the substrate? We're not going to resolve this question tonight, but that's the question. And, and I think you have, it's the substrate and the information, not just the information. That's my opinion. But anyway, I actually, I did write a very long blog post around, on this exact question. There's like a 
hundreds of comments following it. So if you really want to get into the weeds, you know, look look that up on Neurologica. Thanks for the question, <laughs> Tor. All right, thanks, Tor. All right, next is Duncan. Not too bad, not too bad. Interesting conversation so far. Um, just a, a quick question from me, and uh, just based on what's happening tonight, the Ken Ham, Bill Nye debate, it's ongoing as we speak. Uh, I managed to saw, uh, see a little bit of it just before we come on. But um, my question for you guys is, you know he's going to pull the gish gallop, you know he's going to throw all these kind of apologetics out there and all sorts. How would you kind of handle one the gish gallop, but how would you wrap up? What would be your selling point at the end of that debate? Duncan uh, would like to know what our final wrap-up would be to convince a creationist like Ken Ham because the Ken Ham Bill Nye debate is going on right now, actually, as we do this. And uh, I, I did a YouTube video this week with my tips for Bill Nye. And the, the, the main takeaway was that like the main tip is when a creationist asks if you want to have a debate, you say no. <laughs> Absolutely not. So I would like to say that I would never be in that position because I would never agree to debate, particularly Ken Ham at the Creation Museum during an event where they're selling tickets to the Creation Museum. Uh, because it's just, to me, it's a lose-lose proposition. Not to say that all debates are lose-lose propositions. I do think that some are good and have their uses. Like, uh, you know, showing people in the audience that there's another side to things. Uh, you know, you're never going to convince the person you're debating, but you could influence people in the audience. But in this case, like this was such a huge losing proposition. Um, I just, I wouldn't do it, especially because I've never done a debate before. Um, I think debates should only be handled by people who have extensive experience debating, who have studied debate, you know, Bill Nye is not a debater either, which is why I don't think he should have done it. Uh, so, unfortunately, my answer to the question is nothing, because I would never be in that situation. Yeah, you definitely have to control the venue. I think uh, the problem, the big problem is the gish gallop. There is no answer to the gish gallop, which is essentially throwing out a bunch of questions or misconceptions. You know, in 30 seconds, you can create a misconception that would take five or 10 minutes to unravel and deconstruct. And so, uh, the creationists like Dwayne Gish, where, what, what the Gish Gallup is named after, would do that, would create a hundred misconceptions about evolution. And his debate opponent could never possibly address even a any significant fraction of them. So there's really, once that's happened, you've, you've lost, in essence. You, you have to control the venue, the format, the moderating, whatever, so that you can restrict the questions to a few key areas and do a deep dive and follow up and not allow the, the other side to just evade, evade, evade and just gish gallop and keep asking, bringing up new topics, new topics rather than ever being forced to address the previous lies or distortions or misconceptions. I saw the first hour of the debate before this recording started. And it, to say he did a gish gallop is just beyond like that. He went so far beyond gish gallop. 
uh, Ken Ham was on stage arguing against gay marriage and abortion. That's how far off the rails he got. The topic was evolution wow. and creationism. We'll have to call it the Ham wow. Hammer. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the Hammer. <laughs> it was Hammer time. It was so off the rails. It was just embarrassing for everyone involved. I That's thought. too bad. To Steve's point, the problem with coming up with those kinds of parameters is, you know, you're probably not going to get the creationists to agree to those. Uh, you can. No, I've seen debates, you know, where that were carefully moderated, uh, like in, in venue in venues like you know um, NPR or something, but not yeah, not at the Creation Museum. Yeah, that you know that's, that's really basically now Bill Nye is a prop for a publicity mm-hmm. stunt for the Creation Museum. Yeah, yeah, that was the problem. Yeah, getting him to show no, up not. to that debate was a victory for the creationists. That's it. You have any follow-up questions, Duncan? No, no. I'm just, I was just curious. I, I watched the first hour as well. I thought it was great. I'm not a debater myself, so uh, I'd probably just not get in the situation like Roberta says. But I'd, yeah, I'd probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks, thanks, Duncan. Hey, Kevin, you're you're all set. First of all, I want to take second. Hey, you guys are awesome. Uh, thanks, thanks, you, Kevin. Uh, cool. Um, I don't really have a sciencey kind of question, but you know, this happened a few weeks ago, and I listened to a lot of podcasts and. I really haven't heard anybody talk about it too much, so what are your guys' opinion on it? Um, the net neutrality, like, court decision that came down, basically saying, you know, trying to get rid of uh, net neutrality. Personally, yeah, uh, I, no, I was going to say what, see what you guys' opinion on it was. Personally, I think the judges were high, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a travesty. I mean, they were, they were, con- the judges were convinced it, it was a really, really poor Poor decision made with incredibly well thought out arguments to trip to trip them into believing that it actually makes the net more fair, and that you know people will it's it's kind of like um <clears throat> people will get what they want more this way, which is ridiculous. They it, they were tricked into making a horrible decision. Did they actually pass something recently? I haven't been following. Uh, from, uh, matter of fact, actually, I was just looking up um, before the. Uh uh, before the call, see if there was any updates. Uh, the court decision basically came down that they can ISPs can now block websites that they think are well for any reason actually, which mm. was one of the uh, yeah. Like as an example, they can they can block streaming you know from Netflix if they wanted to. And that- yeah, for some reason I just didn't realize that it had passed. I guess I I've been uh, very much out of it. It came out in the news recently. Uh, I think just today that I think uh, a Senate bill came out trying to reestablish yeah uh, net neutrality, trying to overturn yeah. the uh, court decision. Which uh, mm. I'm really hoping that passes. But if there were ne- net neutrality and Netflix were allowed to just you know hog up all that bandwidth, what would happen to everything else? All right, and wouldn't wouldn't that kind of be sacrifice a bunch of other things that you know we all use the internet for? Yeah, and the real fear is that they will charge you, f- you know, for certain particular types of downloading or streaming or whatever. Like they'll they'll they'll, you know, charge you depending on your use or the kind of use, and that's bullshit. You know, you you get into a service plan with someone where you know you're getting fifty meg down a month. Or you know, fifty meg down a second, or whatever you know your your packages, and the, you know they want to start slicing and dicing that up and picking through what you're doing. It's terrible. It's just everything about it is wrong. It's just the, one of the worst things that could happen, as far as the internet and share of information and and privacy, everything. I agree. Yeah, that was my opinion too. I was just wondering if there's maybe some angle of this that I wasn't quite seeing, but yeah. nope, you're right. It's bullshit. 
Yeah, and another uh, another listener that's on tonight, Jeff Edwards, said something that I also thought. He said that they could ransom Netflix for a premium handling of their packets, meaning that they'll say, "Hey, Netflix, you know, we're we're not going to block you if you pay us ten million dollars a month. We'll we'll you know allow you to have a quote unquote premium package with us for delivery." And it's just bullshit. There is just uh just yesterday the um there was is a proposal by um Democrats to restore net neutrality. But you wonder if the judges again sometimes were they judging it just as a matter of law? I mean their their job is not to legislate but to just interpret the law. If they were just saying this is what the law allows, then the the solution to that is legislation. It may be something that could not be resolved in the courts. And and just just means that we need to pass laws to to unequivocally establish net neutrality. I think Jenny was the next one that that asked. Hey, Jenny. Hello. Um, so I'm Jenny Pohl, and for those kids, I think we're teaching to be critical thinkers. So my question is, what was the first or most memorable thing you remember your kids saying? Skeptical thing. Oh, that's easy. Uh, just yesterday was my son's first birthday, and he clearly said. Apple. Very skeptically. He was so skeptical <laughs> when he said it. So when my older daughter was about four, maybe five, the topic of God came up for the first time. And so I, I was explaining to her that, you know, some people uh, believe that there is this being. And I said, you know, different people in different cultures believe different things about him, etc. I went through the whole thing. And then, she, you know, she she took it in and she looked at me and she goes, you mean like Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not sure what connection she was making there. A very clear one. That, Jesus you know, was very beardy. God was like, yeah. God was like, that's awesome. <laughs> my favorite fictional character. That's Steve. That's funny because my daughter had a had a, a similar similar kind of reaction. I, I'll never forget reading her some bedtime stories. We're laying in bed together. She's probably five or six, and uh, out of the blue. She just said, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Wow. And now my ex-wife was, was a Christian and, uh, I was, I was an atheist, but I never pushed it at all because she probably would have killed me, but I never really, I didn't want to force it down her throat. But when she asked, when she asked me questions, I would say, well, some people believe this and other pe- people believe this and so on. And she just kind of figured it out for herself. And it, it just amazed me at five or six. She, she said, not only I don't want to be a Christian anymore. She said, but, you know, where did God come from? And then what about God's parents and their parents? Which I thought was pretty insightful for a five or six year old to think, well, all right, if God exists and where did, you know, where did he come from? You know, and I never thought of that at her age. And, um, that was like one of the proudest moments. And I, I actually wrote it down, her exact words, because I never wanted to forget it. And, um, so that in terms of being skeptical of something, that was her first real skeptical moment. And that, uh, made me very happy that she was really thinking about it. Evan? Oh, yes, Rebecca. I was waiting for you, but uh, no. Yeah, no. not quite there yet, are you? <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, well, my her first science, my daughter's first science question came when she was like four, and she was asking if uh, if there, if ladybugs can be boys. That really fascinated her <laughs> <laughs> that, by that term. So that was a very that cool, is cool science question. And later... And of course you said no. You were of, like, no, they're ladybugs. <laughs> <laughs> Just like how oh, cats are girls and dogs are boys. <laughs> well, our friend Bug Girl actually helped helped her answer that that question. So, mm. uh, hat tip to Bug Girl. Um, that was then, when uh, we had Bug Girl on the show, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yep. That was very cute. Yeah, 
Yay, hey, Jenny, do you have kids? <laughs> no, just foster kittens. They're not very skeptical. Yeah. Well, they are, <laughs> but they're bad. just not sharing it with you. All right. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Jenny. How about Oak? Good evening. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having a chance to talk to you all. Uh, my name is Oak. My question is for Jay. Is that like Prince or Cher? <laughs> no, actually, it's my real name. That's Oak. cool. Is your, uh-huh. your whole yep. name? Uh, my whole name is actually Oak Rajate, but the last oh, part is cool. like unpronounceable that. for most folks. So. It's an unpronounceable symbol. Oak it's a classy name. That's a classy cool. guy. No, I was thinking if you make a roast, do you go with the oven or with a crock pot? Oh, oh. Good, Good question. question. Um, Good question. All right, so for I, I never ask the chefs in the restaurant's kitchen, but I'll ask them next time I'm there. Uh, I'll go with cro- I'll go with crock pot. Um, slow cooking uh, all those delicious foods and stuff in that uh, in that crock pot is uh, you know very very tasty. I very gotta delicious. disagree Always though. Comes out nice. You can't you can't do a roast in a crock pot, and I should say this as a vegetarian. <laughs> Although I have made delicious <laughs> nut roasts before. Um, he says he's. But no, you you have to you have to roast it in the oven. Like to, a roast is very different from what you do in a crock pot. Crock pots are great, and I use mine all the time. But it's a different flavor and a different texture that you get versus a roast. Yeah, but if you're you're right, but it, you know if you're thinking of the pot roast as the cut of beef, you absolutely could do that in a crock pot. We do that because you know my wife and I both work, so this is something we could set up. Let it slow cook all day, and then we come home, and it's ready. Yeah, and hope the house. Know. Is I mean, I would say the answer. The answer is both. Um, you know, there's there's a few different ways that you could you could pull off a pot roast, but I mean, I think traditionally I like searing it, and I like I like putting it in a big pot, not a crock pot like a slow cooker, but just a a big pot on the, on the stove can? with a with a sealed okay. sealed top at one point. What's the consensus with with chefs in terms of slow cooking? Is it generally considered to be more flavorful or just a better way to cook if you ha- have the time to to slow cook? It maximizes the concentration of the umami. Umami. Yeah, I think it just it depends on what you're going for. You know, like what kind of textures and what kind of taste you're. Yeah, going Rebecca's for. right. I mean, everything I cook in the crock pot has, you know, the umami roundness to it. Um, another another huge thing we do with crock pot in our house is. Um, well, at 11 o'clock at night, we'll put in um, oatmeal. So it'll be, you know, oatmeal, skim milk, cinnamon, apples, craisins. In a crock pot? And some sugar and a little bit of butter. And, you know, seven hours you get up and, oh my God, like talk about epic breakfast. It's so good. And the whole house really? smells like cinnamon oatmeal and it's amazing. It's a good idea. Wow. And for our li- listeners who may not be aware, umami is the fifth basic taste it is essentially the savory flavor of meats and it's essentially uh receptors for the amino acid yep. and that's what msg is uh and so, yeah. suspending and so it's slow cooking releases a lot of glutamate you know meats releases a lot of glutamate but uh oak i have a question for you why do you care what we think about cooking because <laughs> obviously we have good taste oh. is is glutamate only released when you slow cook it, or is it a actual something in other foods? Uh, it's not only released with slow cooking, but it's maximized by doing that. Um, so chefs have kind of learned how, how to do it over the years, not necessarily realizing that's what was happening, that the science behind it. And there was it was actually controversial for a while whether umami really existed until it was discovered, you know, that uh, it absolutely is real. Thank you. 
All right. Thanks, thanks Oak. Okay, next person up Mighty is Oak. did James Edward Gray the second go? That guy's that's an awesome. I say that's an awesome name. I'll ask a question from a friend of mine because I like his better than mine. So <laughs> thanks, CJ, for the question. Um, it is what can we learn from our biggest successes and our biggest failures in this uh, skeptical community? Wow. Well, well, that's good. What can we big learn questions. from our biggest successes and failures in the skeptical community? Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, that's hard. <laughs> that's a big question. I would say things like the, like libel reform in the UK, things like that. I, th- I think to me, most of the big successes come from grassroots activism that is supported by larger organizations but not to the point of it smothering them. Uh, so for me, I would say that one thing that we can learn from the big successes is uh, how to properly use crowdsourcing. Uh, you know, our big successes tend to be petitions, um, people, you know, calling representatives, you know, actually motivating people to get up and, and do small things in order to make a difference. And so, uh, I think wise skeptics who want to do something, uh, good for the world will look at how to motivate those large bases to, to, to do things. Yeah. I, I look at it like where has the change taken shape? You know, I think about, um, the Australians fighting against the AVN and, uh, the, their success with, um, with vaccinations. It's work like that. Real, real world successes that make make um, the movement worthwhile. Um, it's not just educating people about critical thinking. It's that you know we the changes that we've made to the world are, are where it's at. That's that's going to have a lasting effect and affect the most people. Well, I agree that it's easier to perceive some concrete benefits when we have like an actual agenda, like stopping the AVN or stopping Stanislaw Bozinski or whatever there's something very specific we mobilize the troops and we embarrass that the net troll or whatever um we, we rally behind simon singh and get libel reform done those are all great but the other kind of quiet success i don't think we should downplay it or ignore it and that is just participating in the conversation in the broader culture like i know we've brought up on the show before the idea that like 9-11 conspiracies really were marginalized and placed on the fringe, I think because of the active participation of the skeptics in the online conversation about it. So even though that may, there may not be an immediate tangible result, I do think we punch way above our weight in terms of our impact on the broader conversation and the culture because we have our shit together, you know. So the, if I would derive a lesson from that, I think we're most effective when as a community we're on the same page. And I think that in terms of our failures, I think we get tripped up when when we fragment, when we allow ourselves to be compartmentalized by ideology um, and, we, and we start behaving as subcategories of skeptics rather than putting the critical thinking first. Yeah, completely agree on your second point. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate all different kinds of activism I don't think there is any one way to behave as a critical thinker, absolutely. And I think we have to allow people to have specialties and, and allow people to do whatever kind of 
you know, whatever kind of activism that they want. And I don't like it when people say my activism is the right kind and yours is the wrong kind. I think that's where the community tends to fall apart. I, I have a similar feeling, but I guess to me, I'd make it more specific. Like w- what I see as huge failures tend to be when we're, when we are closing in too much and, uh, you know, focusing too much on when when we're not focusing on on expanding outside of our current group of dyed in the wool skeptics when we're doing so much preaching to the choir that we ignore the fact that there are people out there who have larger concerns that skepticism would be an amazingly helpful tool for but we don't care about those issues or we don't give, we don't help people. We don't give people platforms to talk about those issues. So things like, like stop and frisk laws, you know, do they work? Uh, how, how are they affecting people? Um, these are things that people have to deal with on a day to day basis and can cause considerable pain in their lives. And it's really helpful, I think, to use critical thinking as a way to examine policies like that. And the more we do that, the more we open up skepticism and critical thinking to a larger swath of people who can find real comfort and real uh, progress through it. I want to bring up an entirely different point, too. And that is, I think, in terms of the um, lessons from our failures, believing that because you have the critical thinking skill set reasonably developed, that that qualifies you to talk about anything. I think that too often we see people who are self-described skeptics who, you know, may know some of the basics of skepticism and then they get totally in over their head on topics that they do not have mastery over. And this could, it could be true, I think, of every activist skeptic to some degree, myself included, all of us included. You know, it's very tough to commute. You are science communicators, critical thinking communicators. And just like, you know, you think about any science communicator out there. At times, you're going to be talking outside your area of expertise, and it's really tricky to to navigate that. But I think when we forget to be really cautious and humble outside of an area of legitimate expertise, then you know the the greatest risk we run is being out there as a representative of the community and then doing a hack job of something we don't have mastery over. We have to be really, really careful about that. I was doing an on-camera interview last week, actually, and the it, it was the topic was about a conspiracy, a particular conspiracy theory. But then uh, it veered into uh, unified field theory, and <laughs> the questions I was getting got to the point where I was like, "Look, <laughs> I'm going to tell you." the basics of unified field theory and why it has nothing to do with this conspiracy. But if you want to know more, please go talk to a physicist because I don't want to get the angry letters when this goes on TV. Yeah. You know. Sometimes you have to be able to say, you know, I've done this in interviews. So I just refuse to ask questions saying that's not, that's too far out of my area of expertise. I don't feel comfortable asking yep. and answering that yeah. question. Yeah. That's fine. Just say no. Just don't feel obligated. I do that all the time. To go somewhere. Yeah, just don't just. I do just that more off. than than you know, make that's statements. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine, but that's okay. All right, thanks. Well, guys, we have to take a quick break for just one sponsor in this week's show. A new sponsor for us, Sherry's Berries. So, Rebecca, the doorbell rings. A package is waiting for you. 
Mm-hmm. You, you bring it inside. You know, you probably get parcels now and again, so you don't think much of it. You open Every it day. up, and it's jam-packed with giant, freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries. Oh, well, that's a pleasant surprise. But, Jay, which kind did she get? Was it dipped in milk chocolate, white chocolate, dark chocolate, or covered with chocolate chips, crushed almonds, a decorated swizzle? And most importantly, is, is there a decorative <laughs> swizzle? That's There's a decorative <laughs> swizzle. I would have sent her the ones that were dipped in dark chocolate. That's a good choice. That, that pairs well with the sweetness of the berries. I could have doubled the package size if I spent just ten more dollars to show an extra special. Oh my God! I know you love these, so instead of for nineteen ninety nine, add ten bucks, double the order, and my God, you're sitting there for hours munching on these. But Jay, that's wow. only if you use the special code Skeptic. That's only for listeners. You have to click on the microphone at the top right corner of the page when you go to berries dot com. And then you will get the special order. You could double it for just $10 more. And you know, guys, this is so worth it. Even though they do not have a peanut butter option, I still think it's well worth it. <laughs> peanut butter <laughs> strawberries, Bob. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> peanut butter oh strawberries. No. But think about it, guys. This is a great way to give a Valentine's Day gift that's not the same old thing. It's a little bit different. And who would, would love chocolate-covered strawberries? Well, I like the idea that you could deliver them. I think that's cool because now you can send them to your friend that lives, say, in Texas. Yeah, guys. So check out berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. And don't forget to click on the microphone and use the special code SKEPTIC uh, in order to send a different and delicious Valentine's Day gift this year. All right, guys. Let's go back to our show. How how about Malcolm Sneglove? Snegrove. Snellgrove. There he is. Third time's the charm. Uh, g'day, my name's Malcolm from South Australia, Malcolm Snowgrove, so you got that right in the end, Jay. In the end. Uh, first off, <laughs> excellent work with the quality and engaging format of the show. That really makes it worthwhile listening. But my question is, given that there will always be people who fall into believing a whole mess of potentially dangerous things, what will we need in terms of organization or organizations to keep the skeptic message going into the future and sort of growing. Can it, is activism enough? Can it stay there? Do we need more? Education reform. Yeah. Education reform, I think, is where it has to happen because we're not, we're not nearly teaching the the students at the younger grades, the critical thinking skills, logic skills uh, that they need. Uh, They really need to be on this stuff much earlier in life, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be teaching them that, and that is sorely lacking, certainly in the U.S. system, I find. Yeah, and if you guys want to, if any of you are educators, check out uh, one of our our newest uh, sister sites at Skeptic is schoolofdoubt.com, where it's all educators from different disciplines, different grade levels who are talking about how to incorporate critical thinking into their uh, lesson plans. And it's not just science teachers, it's, you know, English teachers, music teachers. And I think that that's necessary. I think it needs to happen on a large scale basis is, is people need to, critical thinking just needs to be the undercurrent of our everyday lives, not an afterthought, not something that waits until sixth period science to come into play. So I agree with that. I think we need to do, uh, we need to do everything. We need to do everything. We need to, to focus on actual in-school education, lifelong learning, uh, the media, educating journalists, 
you know, social media and stuff that we haven't figured out yet. We need to keep experimenting. I do think that we need to, uh, make certain aspects of skeptical activism profitable because, you know, where there's money, there are resources, there are, there are, you can get stuff done. You know, we were basically doing as much as we can do with no resources. I'd like to see what we could do with actual resources. I think that would be an interesting experiment to run. I don't think we put all our, of our eggs in any one basket. I think we do everything that we can. And, uh, you know, and I, I mentioned this in answer to the other question, but the other way to me to keep critical thinking relevant is to discuss relevant issues and how critical thinking applies to them, uh, issues that are relevant to people's everyday lives. I think that a lot of us got into this because we like things like Bigfoot and psychics. You know, I love talking about that stuff, but so many people out there just, I mean, that's a fringe belief. That's a fringe interest. Uh, but when we talk about vaccines, for, in- in- for instance, that's, uh, that's something that billions of people are concerned about and need help with. So I, I, I think that opening up our list of topics that we cover uh, goes a great way towards keeping critical thinking relevant and interesting to people outside of our spheres. All right. Thanks, Malcolm. Jeff Edwards. All right, Jeff. Hi. So uh, this is Jeff Edwards from Seattle. My question is, who was the person? <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Uh, we're Find very your happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just won the Super Bowl. So... Oh, right. That's too. Yeah. So first score in both the first and second half within 12 seconds. Anyway, so my question was, who was the person that surprised you most where you first thought they were a great skeptic, but quickly proved you wrong? You mean other than Bill Maher? (laughs) Oh, God, yeah, Bill Maher's a big one. My particular example for me, because I hadn't paid attention to any of his stuff outside of his comedy before I saw him speak otherwise, was Joe Rogan. Oh, Mm. yeah, Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. another good one. Comedians yeah. are ripe for yeah. it, apparently. Follow-up question, do you have an inverse of somebody you thought wasn't skeptical but turned out to be a great skeptic? Ooh, those are good. we got to... For, for me, the first question, someone I thought was skeptical and turned out to be anything but, was Ben Stein. Because I knew that he was uh, an economist, you know, and a professor and, you know, certainly a man of education and had some very valid things to say along those lines. And guess what? I wake up one morning and I find out, oh my gosh, he's an unapologetic creationist. This guy is awful. Turned him off, uh, turned off forever at at that point. Forget all his economics and everything else. I mean, at that point, he just absolutely ruined it. Yeah, Ev, I couldn't agree with you more, right? I mean, he is so not skeptical, it blew my mind. Yeah, I never really, I never really thought he was skeptical. You know, maybe intelligent about this and that, but not, I never really thought of him as skeptical. Yeah, Mike mentions Ira Flato. He has said some weird stuff. Oh, Ira. And also yeah. Robert Krolwich has said some, some like iffy stuff on past episodes of Radiolab that I thought. Oh, and yeah, Jane, Jane, Goodall. Jane Goodall. Good one, Damien. As well. Oh, yeah. And, yeah um, she was like. They tend to, like the Ira Flatos, I mean, they tend to have a blind spot when it comes yep. to alternative medicine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the one that seems to get everybody because it really does require a pretty sophisticated, I think, understanding of lots of things like placebo effects, etc. Jane Goodall um, wasn't just about Bigfoot. Um, it, she plagiarized parts of her last book and plagiarized from like a like a, an insane alt med naturopath. Oh sort yeah, of yeah. 
guy. It was really disappointing. Super. So I have a. And I can Richard answer Atten. the other question. Um, Mark Cuban was a big surprise coming out as a skeptic, or you know, I don't even know if he identifies himself as a skeptic, but that man is a skeptic. He has supported nine eleven truthers. Yeah, stuff. has he given up the loose change stuff? If, if I haven't seen anything definitive on yeah, that, yeah, he has. Good. I for think him he's just avoided the topic. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he has kind of just ignored it. I think he's cool he otherwise. Yeah, I, I but, think. Yeah. yeah. But what it shows you, though, is that it's not a, a all right, or nothing right. black or white proposition. Right. I mean, there are different sort of critical thinking skill sets, and you can have part of it, but not all of it, you know? Yeah. And it's also knowledge bases. It's not just the critical thinking. It's also yeah, I mean, specific it's knowledge bases. So, like, Mark Cuban's a good example. Like, within his area... I mean, you know, you watch Shark Tank. He, uh, there are some, some, some segments where he is right on the money in terms of the skepticism. But outside of that area, like a conspiracy, he may not, he just may not have the conspiracy theory module yeah. in his career. Well, I think, I think with him, this is he a wild guess, but my, I, my gut's telling me that it's more of he just doesn't have the information. I think if you were able to have a real conversation with him about it, he'd see it and then he'd do a 180 on it. Yeah, for me, thinking about the things that the the people that surprise me, it's not because I expected them to be dummies or anything, but more just that um, there are a number of people who I've met in uh, random places and through random circles of friends who I don't expect to, even though they might be skeptical, I don't expect them to be excited about critical thinking and science and skepticism, but then they are, and I it pleases me like. One would be Frank Conniff and Trace Ballou and Bill uh, Corbett, like all of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 guys. Well, not all of them, but the ones that I've met uh, have all been like I've met them in various circumstances, independent of one another, and had told them what I do and they get really, really excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, next question. Um, I think Damien has not gone yet. G'day, Riggs. Okay, so my question for you, my, I'm Damien, my question for you is, uh, what is the worst argument you have ever received from a climate, evolution, or vaccine denier? Oh. Um, how about, uh, oh, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> classic, classic. Let's see. So I was listening to the, uh, the debate that uh, Bill Nye is currently doing, and uh, the orchard, the, uh, the, the uh, orchard, that he came up with for the tree of evolution, Darwin's tree of evolution, he came up with the orchard of evolution, saying that 6,000 animals went on the ark. And I thought that was just ridiculous. So that would be mine. What's yours? I mean, the banana has got to be a perennial favorite. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. hard to top that one. Easily. Ray Comfort's banana. Yeah, top banana, got it, Which even, it was so bad that even Ray Comfort had to eventually Back be like, away. you know what? I take it back. <laughs> did he really? Like too late. <laughs> I missed that. Somehow. He did. Yeah. He, no, he did. He admitted that the evolutionists had a point and that Evil. it was the wrong argument to make. Good for him. So yeah. I, I think he just got tired of people throwing bananas. Out. Yeah, I think he was tired of all the dick jokes. Really, <laughs> I don't like the. the I bet he still like, believes oh, it though, Rebecca. It's curved and it fits in your yeah. mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I I hate the god of the gaps. I hate the whole because we don't have an absolutely exquisite example of fossil to fossil, you know, with amazingly subtle transitions and then when we find one that's perfectly in the middle of fossil A and fossil B, you know, then they just go to the middle of those, you know, the two new middles two that new were gaps. created. Two more gaps. That's that just, you know, that's <laughs> such an insult 
to everything in my brain that actually has logic, it makes me sick. Yeah. It's also that um, peanut butter jar argument. Like, uh, yeah. why can't life arise from a peanut butter jar? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, like, why hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Why? Well, I, I mean, obviously, yeah, that person's never seen my peanut butter jars, but yeah. But that sticks out in my mind as a particularly poor argument then, then there's the classic there's the you know if if we came from monkeys why are there still monkeys which like, yeah that's the one i still see like, st- yeah people still say oh, that sure. all right i'll give a very specific one since the other ones were some of them were, the others were generic uh if you recall the uh creationist neurosurgeon michael egnor once argued that if evolution were true then cancers should evolve into new organisms or they think, you know, why, uh, uh, why doesn't cancer make our into brains? If you have brain cancer, uh, if you have brain cancer, uh, that should make your brain function better, right? Because the brain, the cancer cells should evolve into a better brain. Yeah, I, I had a wart once that became sentient, but not cancer. That's, that's just too much. Next question, <laughs> Eric. And Matthew, a twofer. Hello, um, our question is, where do you draw the line between, between being skeptical and being confrontational when speaking about like, pseudo-sciences and non-science-based things. The two aren't mutually exclusive. I know plenty of skeptics who are very confrontational and many who are not. Yeah, they're kind of independent variables. Yeah. My my style is usually, you know, confrontation has its... Uh, confrontation can work if you're, you know, depending on what your goals are. Uh, sometimes it can work really well if, uh, you're just trying to convince people around you and not the person that you're arguing with. But for me in my day to day life, I avoid confrontation at all costs, which I know a lot of people are like, what? Um, but, uh, you know, I usually take a more humorous kind of approach, like a, a very easygoing approach, unless, somebody is talking about something that could actually kill them. You know, we've talked before about the idea of just planting the seed, plant the seed of skepticism and critical thinking in their brain and then walk away because you're never going to convince somebody in the moment when you're fighting with them. And that's a mistake that a lot of people who are confrontational, I think, make. That's, that that's they what, think this that, is Eric. Um, that's what I try to do. And with a family, if we're walking through like a county fair or something like that, and there's a chiropractor there, an acupuncturist, they want to engage us in conversations, and I will, and I will sort of ask them questions, you know, to actually let them prove their points or, or make points. And, and my children, Matthew and my daughter, when she's around also, sometimes think that um, I'm embarrassing them. They understand, my son especially, since he's become a member of the community. But uh, sometimes it's a challenge, and you know, I don't want to come across obnoxious. You know, I, you know, more so to my family than the other people, because I really don't care what the stranger thinks about me. Hey, if if asshole skepticism worked, we would have won a long time ago. It, it doesn't work well. I don't think that's true. I mean, I, I I think being an asshole does work sometimes. Lots of people see someone being an asshole, and it gets them all passionate about being an asshole too, or just being skeptical. You know, sometimes it's enough to jar someone out of their their thought process. You know. Sometimes it works, but I think like on a day-to-day basis, like if you want to make friends and influence people, being an asshole isn't 
probably your best bet. Yeah, there's there's so few people where I've seen that actually work. It's really tough to pull off. I wouldn't recommend it for, for most anybody. I wouldn't even try it because it's just it's so hard to pull. You have to have a knack at that to, to make it an effective form of communication, at the very least for your audience, if not the person you're being confrontational with. But Rebecca, I think you nailed you you nailed that answer. You you hit all the all the key aspects to it. I mean, I'm I'm similar. I don't I'm not very confrontational at all, and I like because I when you when you confront somebody, the shields just go up, and you're not you're not going to get through. Um, only except in very special circumstances. So I like plant the seed, say your bit, and just and let them think about it, and don't even expect them to change their mind quickly, if at, if at ever really. But if you if you do give it that, that those seeds, then months or even years down the road, it could bear some fruit. You know, everything is measured by degrees as well. I mean, you know, when are you actually being an a-hole versus being passionate or forceful or whatever? I mean, you get, you get more flies with sugar than you do vinegar. And I think that that follows in this. I mean, it takes a long time to change somebody's mind that's deeply seated, has, you know, deep roots of non-critical thinking, whatever. Like, I just find through my, you know, 25 years of skepticism that I've, done a lot more good by being nice and patient every single day I have to bite my no it is it's a constant struggle for a lot of us because we want to push it out there the the easy fast way which is you know getting hot and and yelling at people or just get you know getting loud and it doesn't work it doesn't work well you know poop does catch the most flies it does yeah I mean if you're on if you're on Hitchens level go for it yeah you got to develop your own mojo and you and it's also very situational. So you really can't give one answer. You got to titrate the confrontation and the style to the to the target audience, to the situation, to your goals, um, and you just have to. You know, I don't know that there's any magic formula. You kind of have to figure it out as you go along. But pay attention to the outcomes. If you're not paying attention and you're just doing what what your emotions dictate, you're probably going to be getting into trouble. If you're actually working the situation and thinking about how people are responding and what kind of results you get, you'll work it out. So um, figure it out. Element point. X, or his name is Gary Evans, his mic isn't working, so his question is, as someone who does not have a deep background in science, but has come to realize later in life just how seriously interesting it is, I'd like to know if there are if there are any resources that you think do a particularly good job of making the basics of the major physical concepts accessible to the non-specialist. I'm interested in both resources for adults, but also for my son, who is 10. Thanks. It kind of changes over the years because there's always newer ones coming out and older ones become dated. Like Cosmos, I think, is a, is still uh, a good resource and young kids can appreciate it. And it's not that dated. A lot of the stuff is, is held up. Of course, the new Cosmos is coming out in March. Uh, we're all looking forward to that Yeah, with, with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, so I think good video, like good TV series like that are a great place to start. Um, it's just a matter of finding the good ones. I like the ones where, you know, it's not just a series of talking heads and a voice. It's actually a host who's crafting the message and taking you on a journey. I like that style better, the, the, the Cosmos type of, uh, of style. For kids that, uh, I got to play with the ebook version of Dawkins' Magic of Reality. I think that's what it was called, Magic of Reality. It came out like, last year or so and the ebook was really well done i gotta say uh i thought it, like if i had been a little kid i would have loved it there were like little mini games to play as you read along with the book 
Uh, it was really cool. There was a, a physics teacher that did an audio book on, um, on quantum physics and relativity. His last name was Wolf. And I think it was for the teaching company or one of those, those course companies. It was, it was amazing. He, he just gave you a, an awesome, one of the best primers I've ever heard or read for, uh, general and special relativity and quantum mechanics. And it was also, it was based on the idea of this is the problem with physics at the time. And this is why relativity or quantum physics fixed that problem or filled that gap or solved this mystery. And he, he just brought you through the whole process of what, you know, what was going on and why they needed these new theories to come in and answer these questions. So if you could find that, I'm sorry, I can't think of, I can't find his, uh, his full name, but his name was Wolf and, uh, it was, uh, an amazing, an amazing teacher. I learned a lot. Go ahead, Isaac. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, do you think that the drive to pass on your molecules is an antiquated artifact of evolution? It just seems that where technology is headed, uh, biological reproduction seems unnecessary and in some ways a little selfish. Uh, let me answer that question from a specific point of view. Then I think, I do think, and this is a kind of a hand-waving evolutionary psychological explanation, but here it goes. I do think that, uh, you know, psychologists have identified that we do have this inherent notion of essence. Um, which is really interesting. Like, for example, if a child has a favorite toy and you, you play a magic trick on them where you pretend like you're duplicating their toy, they will not accept the duplicate because uh, it's not really their toy. Whereas if it's not a favorite toy, it's just something practical or just a toy that's not their chosen favorite one, then an exact duplicate is a perfectly fine substitute. So why is it? Why do we have this sense that there's some magical metaphysical essence and that being an exact physical copy isn't sufficient if it's not the actual original thing? It probably, I mean, it's, 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 I don't think there's any one simple answer to that, but I, I imagine that the, the, uh, the parenting instinct might have something to do with that. You know, you you want to know that the the child you're taking care of is your actual child, and like being replaced with a substitute that looks very similar is not acceptable. It's got to be your actual actual child. So I think that it's part of that of that bonding, and that does seem to be replicated in you know children who have a favorite toy that they imbue with a personhood and essence, etc. It's a, it's the same kind of thing. So. That's, I think, just built into our psychology. And, you know, you also, you could also think about the survival instinct, you know, that you want to survive yourself, you know, because that is what leads us to behave in such a way that makes us survive, right? That's, we evolved from people who wanted to survive. Uh, I don't know that you really need more of an explanation than that to explain why we feel this way. Yeah, we've talked about this before. I, I agree. The, um, what do they call that? The um, it has uh, there was a cool word for is yeah agency? agency when is when the, something it, is given agency you know you're it takes on a, a completely different idea in your head than something that you haven't imbued with it so yeah I, yeah I don't think it's necessarily agency in that context Steve I I think another way to interpret it and the parenting example you gave might be is really good and probably more powerful but it's it's the idea of um. A duplicate, yeah, it's a duplicate, and it would function and serve as a perfect stand-in for whatever that thing was. But that that history that you had with the, you know, those atoms isn't there with a duplicate, and and that's kind of how I interpret that that whole idea of 
you know, this thing is special because we go way back, you know, it's, it's, it's that thing. It's that exact thing. It's not, the duplicate doesn't, you don't have that shared history with it and memories of that specific thing. Yeah, I guess I was more interested in, like, your guys' feelings on if it's still a necessary drive. Like, eating fatty foods isn't really a necessary drive anymore. Like, we have plenty of access to food. We don't need to, like, go and eat the food we can't. Is it still necessary to want to have kids? Like, or is that just an artifact of our evolution? We can kind of, like, try and not do that now. Well, yeah, but not, we don't need to have kids anymore to, to what standard, though? I mean, what do you, what do you mean? Like, because, like, let's say that singularity makes everybody immortal, you know, according to how long the universe is going to last. Doesn't mean that the human race can't expand beyond the boundaries of Earth and continue to grow and and everything like that, right? Is that what you're talking about? I guess a bit. It was more that um, if you are mortal, then you don't need to reproduce. Like, there's no longer a necessity to reproduce as much as you possibly can because you're, you know, most of your babies are going to die in infancy and and things like that. You know, uh, and there's no need for most people to reproduce at all in order for the human race to continue on as is because of gross overpopulation at this point. So yeah, I mean, I I think yes, but that doesn't mean that you know just just because the necessity is no longer there, of course, doesn't mean that the need disappears. Unfortunately, so you could get down to that old question like is it selfish to have kids you know when you don't actually need to have children and you know it's only going to increase the carbon footprint and whatnot and i don't think we're quite at that point yet uh, no matter how many breeders jokes i make to my friends who are all popping out babies right now present company included so yeah i, I mean i i think it's 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 not necess- uh, necessary anymore but um you know people are going to keep popping out kids for the foreseeable but future. It, it, it is part of the, the human the condition human experience. Right. Yeah, and it's we, part of being per person. I think even in the distant future, if we ever reach this point where we're actually designing our kids, you know, we're going to want to design them, even if it's not genetically, you know, it'll be algorithmically. We'll want to, you know, imbue them with something of ourselves. It's just, yeah, part of being human. I would design that, mine to um, look like a cat. <laughs> that I think will never, will be with us for quite a while. Okay, next question. Jonathan is, I believe, our last person to ask a question, so we're going to be turning his mic on and all set. Hello. Hey, Jonathan. Hello. All right, guys. Uh, I have been stressing out all night wanting oh, to ask a question. My question is, with the with Stephen Hawkins' new idea of that there isn't a defining line of what is and isn't a event horizon, Right. What does that have to do with the, the holographic principle? It all has to do with information. It has to do with how information... His new idea preserves information because quantum theory says that information cannot be created or destroyed. You can't get rid of it. And that was part of the problem with the event horizon. The information goes in the event horizon and that's it, never to be seen again. So that was a big problem. But when they looked at the event horizon quantum mechanically, it's this big firewall of death. But with the holographic tie-in, Bob, is that the information on the shell, if you will, like, like on a the four-dimensional shell of the universe, is equivalent. It's equivalent to all the information inside, right? That's right. That, that's the whole notion of the holographic universe. That, that all the information necessary to describe the entire universe can be accounted for on an out the outer edge of even whatever the 
Yeah, but the, even it was the event horizon of the universe. Even even with it, what's within event horizon would be would yeah. be there. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's all just a mathematical. You know, you can mathematically, you know, you do the formulas and everything, and it, you could show that there's the same amount of information. You know, on the outer edge versus the entire volume in the middle. So, therefore, you only really need that outer edge, and then you can apply that to the universe, or you could apply it to a black hole to try to solve the information paradox with black holes. And that's that's as deep as I could really yeah, go into. Yeah, I wouldn't say there's a strong connection because mainly because black holes and some type of event horizon uh, exists, whereas this whole idea of a holographic universe that's completely speculative. That's way kind of out there stuff. So I wouldn't even really, you know, worry too much about that right now. I'd, I'd, I'd focus more on, you know, what he's saying about the event horizon and the apparent horizon and the firewall. But yeah, the holographic stuff is really, really out there. And, um, and I haven't heard of any direct connections between it. But yeah, it does have to do with information and, and how it's preserved as quantum mechanics says it has to be preserved. Well, guys, thank you so much. What a, what a cool night. I really appreciate the questions and, uh, yeah, this is fun. Yeah. Let's do it again sometime. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks again to all of our listeners for joining us on this uh, live Q&A special episode of the SGU. And guys, thank you for joining me thank again. You. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to everyone episode. who joined us. Have a great night, everybody. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. We got to do this again, guys. It was fun. And until the next episode, actually not a full week away, just a few days away, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.